Here's my big idea. Thirst is actually a curse. This is, uh, this is very controversial. And it, to be honest, it was something in me that actually shifted uh, when I was doing some study, probably around about nine months ago now. Because the whole of my life in the church, I thought it was a good thing to be thirsty. But thirst, as you'll see as we go through today, actually indicates that there's something that's wrong. There's a number of uh, quite well-known authors who I uh, dare to uh, critique a little uh, who, who promote the idea that thirst is generally a pretty good thing. Larry Crabb's one of those guys who uh, promotes thirst as a really good thing. People have got needs. People have, people have got a thirst that they need quenched by God. John Eldridge is probably another one who speaks highly of the fact that thirst is actually a really helpful thing. Now, I can understand what they're saying, and don't, I'm not saying I'm smarter than them. They're much smarter than me. But I just think when, when we get inside Jeremiah chapter 2 today, you're actually going to see that thirst is actually, it's like a, a warning light or a, a warning buzzer that's going off indicating that there's actually something wrong. And the truth is it's nice to think about the fact that people go to God with their thirst to get it quenched. But the truth is if we were to do a statistical survey, people go to many, many, many other things to get their thirst quenched other than God. And statistically it's probably the case that people more often go to things that aren't God to get their thirst quenched than they do to go to God. So thirst is actually uh, a, a very dangerous thing. It's a very dangerous place to be in. Does that make sense? Because you're going to get your thirst quenched or you're going to attempt to get your thirst quenched. The big question is, where will you go? So here's what I want to do. This is uh, pretty uncommon at the project. But we're going to read quite a lengthy portion of scripture. And we're going to read Jeremiah chapter 2. So can you just, would you mind just sticking your hand up if you've got a Bible on a, either a hard copy or a digital kind of version? Okay. If you're not sitting close enough, can you kind of make a new friend so that you can see a Bible? All right? It'll be really good. I'm happy for you to stand up and move around. But I want you to see this. We're going to read the whole of chapter 2 of Jeremiah. So if you, can, if you need to move, move. Because I really want you to get inside Jeremiah's head. Jeremiah here is uh, speaking to um, the people of Israel. Now the problem with Israel is that they're worshipping some pathetic little god called Baal and Ashtoreth. All right? They're ridiculous. They're a joke. All right? All idols are a joke. You only have to read the middle section of Isaiah where Isaiah makes the most rude comments about idols and about false gods. All right? I'm a massive believer in the fact that we need to respect people and I actually think Christianity gives the best framework in which people can actually pursue what they think or what they believe in, all right? It's probably better than almost all other systems. Atheists are particularly intolerant. Muslims are very intolerant, all right? I actually think Christianity provides the most opportunity or the most free opportunity for people to follow their convictions, all right? The one thing that the Bible does and the one thing that God loves to do is he loves to make fun of false gods. And he just does it all the time. And honestly, in our day and age, if, if you read the, the, the middle section in Isaiah around about, don't quote me on it, but about 35 to 45, chapters 35 to 45, he's just downright rude. He just is. And he's, it's actually quite funny. 
It's going, what a joke you are. You go and cut a tree down and part of the tree you use to warm yourself and to bake some bread and the other bit you bow down to. He's like going, well, that's really dumb, you know, and he just keeps making jokes about it. They're very rude, all right? But here's the thing. False gods are very pathetic and, and they're very dodgy. So here we go, Jeremiah 2. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your lovers abroad, how you followed me into the wilderness in a land not sown. He's talking about being taken out of Egypt. God rescued his people from Egypt and took them into the wilderness. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them. You hear in there, God's just going... I defended my people. And can you hear, it's just like, this is almost like the honeymoon period for him. It's like, I, I brought you out, and how good was it? You remember how good that was? And people attacked you, and I fought for you, and I was really jealous for you, and I kind of beat them up, all right? Which is what he did. Verse 4, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? I mean, it starts to sound like a jilted wife or a jilted husband. He's just going, what did I do wrong? Why did you go? Why did you go with them? And went after worthlessness and became worthless. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in the land of desert and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that no one that none passes through where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. So God brought his people from the wilderness, from Egypt into the wilderness, into Canaan. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests, of all people it should have been the priests, the priests did not say, where is the Lord? You just got to pause on that. These are God's representatives and they're not even asking where God is anymore. I mean, if you were God, I mean, I'll probably say this a few times today, if you were God, you would be really frustrated with that, wouldn't you? And offended. Of all the people that should defend your honour and should uphold your name, they're the people who aren't even asking where he is. Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and they went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend from cross to the coast, sorry, for cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and imagine, examine with care. See if there has ever been such a thing. He's saying, look everywhere around the world and see if there's ever been a thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? He's going, how dumb is this? My people have forsaken me and they've changed to something that's not even a god. And he's going, see if you can find that anywhere where people do that. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Now that's, that's a harsh indictment, but it's a beautiful one too, isn't it? 
I mean, if you think the flip side of that, you just go, well, it's true. Probably a lot of us change God and our trust in God for something that doesn't profit. But if you flip it round and you go the other way, what do you get? You get something that profits and that's totally glorious. Verse 12, be appalled, O heavens, at this. So God says, this is the most appalling thing. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out systems for themselves, broken systems that can hold no water. See, one of them, a fountain of living water, you're not going to be thirsty, are you? It's, it, it doesn't stop. That's his point. The living waters just keep coming out. The other one, it's broken. That just sounds thirsty straight up when you read it. You just go, that's going to be hard. Verse 14, is Israel a slave? What do you reckon the answer to that is? Yes or no? Well, they are now, but they weren't, they weren't were they? Is he a home-born servant? The answer is no. Why then has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Taphanes, I think, I don't know, is that, does anyone know how to say that? Well, that, I'll just tell you then. That's how you say it. <laughs> have shaved the crown of your head. Listen to this, verse 17. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God? You see, you get the feel here, like thirst is coming from a forsaking of God when he led you in the way. And now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? See, thirst quenching. What's he saying? He's going, they're going to go to Egypt and they're going to try and get help from Egypt instead of coming to me. What do you gain by going to get your thirst quenched by drinking the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Don't go and get help from the, the Assyrians either. Your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, broke them out of slavery, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bow down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. How can you say, I'm not unclean? I've not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. And then Jeremiah engages in what is some very coarse language. You're a restless young camel running here and there. A wild donkey used to the wilderness, in her heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month they'll find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. Do you hear that? Keep your throat from thirst. And God would say that to you today. Keep your throat from thirst. But you said, it's hopeless. For I've loved foreigners. And after them, I will go. 
As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests and their prophets, who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth. For they have turned their back to me and not their face. That's an amazing phrase. There's a classic uh, Latin phrase called Coram Deo, which means to live before the face of God. And this is not living before the face of God. This is turning of the back. But in the time of their trouble, they say, arise and save us. This is like, this is the classic, if you just get me out of this, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. All right? Which maybe some of us have prayed. What does God say? He goes, well, where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. Why do you contend with me? You've all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. In vain have I struck your children. They took no correction. Your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. And you, O generation, behold the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? Why then do my people say, we are free, we will come no more to you? And that's an amazing, I mean, I might get into this a little bit later, but that is an amazingly accurate representation of the way that humans work. I, when I'm free, when I'm totally free, I'm not actually going to need God. That, that's not a biblical understanding of freedom. If you were made dependent upon God, which I think clearly you are, freedom will never ever come in being independent from God. That will only ever lead to slavery. But yet, inside, we often have that voice going on where we just go, I just want to be free. I mean, I don't know how many times in my life I just, I've thought, I want to just be able to do life without, this is probably a terrible thing for a preacher to admit, but I just want to be able to do life without the hassle sometimes of having to spend time with God. Do you know what I mean? It's, some of you are going, really? Is this guy's getting ordained next week? All right? Sometimes it's just hard, isn't it? You know, to sit down and kind of grind. Sometimes you've got to grind it out and you just go, I'd like to just be free and not have to do it. But see, as soon as you start doing that, you're actually, you've ended up in slavery again. That's not freedom. Can a virgin, verse 32, can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? The answer is no, no way. I mean, seriously. Bride's going to come to the wedding just in like yard clothes. You know, I say, oh, I forgot. <laughs> Not going to happen, right? How well you direct your course to seek love so that even to wicked women you have taught your ways. Also on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. Yet you did not find them breaking in. Yet in spite of all these things, you say, I'm innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying, I have not sinned. How much you go about changing your way. You shall be put to shame by Egypt as you were put to shame by Assyria. From it too will come away from it too you will come away with your hands on your head for the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust and you will not prosper by them. Now who knows that's true when you don't trust in God and you trust in something that you don't ultimately end up prospering by. Has anyone known that? It's just true. All right. So here we go. A central theme. 
is Jeremiah 2, verse 12 to 13. Now, it's pretty negative because the people are getting it wrong. But hear the heart of God in the midst of it, that he is the fountain of living water. It's shocking, it's appalling what the people are doing. Not because it's evil in and of itself, although that's shocking enough, that the appalling, shocking, horrific thing about it is there's this beautiful fountain of living water that is free and they have access to it and they just don't want it. It's just like, I'll be right. This is like a, a, a pauper with cancer and there's a cancer treatment. A poor person with cancer and there's a cancer treatment that can, that can fix them and can save them but it costs $150,000 and the person doesn't have the money and there's someone offering them a million dollars in cash and they're not a drug dealer. All right? And, you, and they go, yeah, I'll be right. Thanks. You know, it's really... It's like the queen invites you to dinner and you go, yeah, no, I'm sweet. It's like lamb roast at home tonight. <laughs> right? It's just ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. And this is the big idea here in, in Jeremiah 2. And this is, the, this is the insanity. And this is kind of one of the words that you hear through this. There's just an incredible insanity that comes with forsaking of God. Here's the first thing. When people forsake God, they exchange treasure for dirt. That's what they do. When you forsake God, when I forsake God, there's an exchange that goes on and we take something that's dirt and we give away treasure. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. I'm going to show you a clip from uh, 60 Minutes. because I want, I want you to get in your head the uh, insanity of, of what we do. This is uh, Mel Gibson. It is Mel Gibson. It doesn't sound like him, though. Yeah. We all have demons. Hold on. Gibson says, we all have demons within, but none more deadly than his own. That ferocious battle with lifelong addiction. Four months ago, as nearly everyone knows, after a long sobriety, he had fallen back. In July, there was that drunken, anti-Semitic outburst at a police officer who was arresting him for drunk driving. The risk of everything, life, limb, family, is not enough to keep you from it. That's the, that's the hell of it. You are indefensible against it. If your nature is you one will of alcoholism, sacrifice. anything. But it's God. You got to go there. You got to do it. And, or you won't survive. Isn't that amazing? That's particularly instructive, you know, because it's, that's insane. He's, he's at the moment when the addiction kind of hits where he's just like, I'm really thirsty right now and I need to get my thirst quenched. She says, I have to have it and I will sacrifice anything to get it. This is what people do. We exchange treasure. Is a family and our children a treasure? Yeah, they are, right? So Mel Gibson, what's he, what's he do at that moment? He exchanges his whole treasure. I mean, God's a far greater, an infinitely greater treasure than a family, but he exchanges his family for dirt, doesn't he? For nothing. 
And you see this in uh, Jeremiah chapter 2. Gibson Gibson. Oh, sorry. You see this in Jeremiah chapter 2 there. In verse 5 it says, Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? You see, when you're anxious, when you're in trouble, when you need to, a saviour, when you need help and you go to chocolate and you go to the fridge and you go to Clifford Gardens and do retail therapy, all right, and then need therapy after that because you went to Clifford Gardens, and then, or you go to Grand Central, or you get up and you talk to your, you, you pick a phone up and you go and you talk to your friends and you don't go to God. You've just exchanged something that's worthless for something that's infinitely valuable. And I'm not saying your friends are worthless, but your dependence upon them and that mechanism of what's going on in there is actually a worthless mechanism and it won't help you. You notice here that when you go after worthlessness, you become worthless. It actually becomes an identity. If you pick up your mobile phone, your iPhone, and you're just going, oh, cool, I just got a text or a status. I'll put a status update out, and I've got 25 likes on Facebook, and all of a sudden I am somebody. You know, it's like God's just going, you're going after worthlessness. I'm the living water. I'm the spring of living water that never runs dry. priest did not say where is the lord those who handle the lord did not know me the shepherds transgressed against me the prophets prophesied by baal and went after things that do not profit this is a really bizarre thing about humans is it not that we're so good economically working out how can i actually profit all right and my family tends to be pretty good as you've heard me say before at getting deals all right it's like we're going to get the deal right you get the deal and i think i said this a while ago 60 percent of australians now want to get the deal before they buy anything, you know. It's like, I want to save some money because I want to profit out of it. But it's just ironic that when it actually comes down to the things that we trust in the, in the nitty-gritty details of our lives, we pursue things that don't profit all the time. And they don't work. It's just... Nathan mentioned it at my party last night, but uh, despair.com has, um, has got this, uh, this calendar kind of thing that they put out about idiocy, which is where you just keep going back and doing the same thing all the time, even when it doesn't work. And that's, I mean, that's humans, isn't it? I remember my dad is here today, said that the one thing we learn from history is that we don't learn anything from history. All right? I keep telling students at school, don't do history, it's got no future. <laughs> but here's, here's the thing. We don't learn anything, do we? And we... A lot of the time we don't even learn from our own personal history, do we? You look back and you just go, I'm pretty sure I did that like three weeks ago. You know, and it didn't work then either. But somehow I just, it's like the deception of uh, chronological time. It's like three weeks later and I'm sure it's going to work this time. Chocolate is going to get it done for me this time. All right? And then you do it again you go, oh no, now the treadmill is going to have to get it done, right? And then you just, you just spin up. But it's a weird thing. It's just a weird dynamic for humans. It's just like, yeah, I've done this and I've tried this 55,000 times in the 40 years of my life, but I'll just, it's going to work this time. All right? And it's kind of the, the youth, there's kind of the youth version of it, which is like everyone stands up and says, a whole bunch of really bad things are going to happen to you if you do this stuff. But there's, and 80% of people have these bad things happen. And the automatic youth thing is, well, I'm going to be in the 20%. Right? I'm gonna, it's like, and the cool thing about that is it's like youth are kind of going, I don't care what the odds are, I'll have a crack at it. And that's really good. 
mostly. <laughs> All right? But the truth is, most people are in the 80%, right? That's why it's 80%, not in the 20%. And somehow we get it in our heads, we just go, no, I think I can make it work this time. Jeremiah 2.25, keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. See, I actually think this is the ultimate goal for every person that follows Jesus and it's the ultimate goal for everyone, for anyone in this room that doesn't even know him is that God would want to get you to a place where you're not thirsty, all right? And he's not looking for a satisfied, thirsty, satisfied. He's looking for satisfied, continually quenched. That's the goal. But you said it is hopeless for I have loved foreigners and after them I will go. I love fantastic delights snacks. Does anyone else here like them? You don't even know what I'm talking about. A couple, all right, you know what I'm talking about. But there is just something crazy about fantastic. They must have like cups of salt in them, all right? Because you start eating them. Oh, this is a bit of an admission, but you start eating them and you just go, wow, that's a whole packet gone, you know, really quick. And then in the middle of the night, I wake up, my mouth's like a dry sock, you know, and my tongue's a dry sock in my mouth, and I'm just going, too much salt, and I'm drinking water like it's crazy. There's um, a well-known kind of effect of salt um, for people who get stranded at sea. So I've got this, um, I'm just going to read you a section off a website that just talks about um, the effects of drinking salt water. It uh, says this in point four, there's actually ten different points. The ultimate one, obviously, is that you die. But point number four is excessive thirst. It says this, drinking salt water of sea comes as one of the last resorts to seafarers when out on sea. However, it fails the very purpose it is done for. Now, that's particularly instructive, isn't it? Just go, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to trust in something else. But that thing, and you know it, we all know it, right? Those things that we trust in, that we go to for help, fail the very purpose that you've gone to them for. One of the major effects of drinking salt water is not quenching of thirst, but an augmentation in it. Due to excessive salt content of seawater, the body does not register the water in it, but only the salt. As such, there would be no satiation, but only maddening desire to drink more and more water. Now that, well, they're not writing it for this reason, that is absolutely a sensational commentary of our culture, is it not? We've got to get our thirst quenched. And so what we're going to do, what does our culture do? Drink salt water. And it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse till we go crazy. See, insanity is extreme foolishness, folly, senselessness, foolhardiness. We'd say things like this, trying to drive through that traffic would be pure insanity. And I'm sure that you've had the moment where you've looked at someone else who's gone to something to get their thirst quenched and you've just gone... That is insane. That's not going to work. And more than that, I've seen you try that a dozen times and it's never worked for you. Any time that you've gone to it, it's never, ever worked for you. The insanity of thirst and addiction. Point two. God didn't make you a slave. Is Israel a slave? Is he a home-born servant? Why then has he become a prey? God never made you to be a slave to anything. He made you to be his child. And there's a sense in the New Testament where it says that you're a slave of righteousness, all right? But being a servant of God is the best kind of slavery you could ever be in, all right? 
It's absolutely releasing and, and, uh, and freeing, and, and you become what you were meant to be. Israel was wholly set apart, especially in relationship to the Lord. I want to show you a, um, a clip from 60 Minutes. I won't give you a whole lot of intro, but uh, it was by a lady, Charlotte Dawson, who um, got attacked by uh, trolls on the net. She was uh, on Australia's Next Top Model or something. She was one of the, uh, the hosts of it. And uh, she actually attempted suicide. It's really quite interesting. On the internet, they're known as trolls. But let's name them for what they really are. Bullies, plain and simple. These cowards lurk in the shadows of the online world using false names to spread their messages of hate. Their attacks can be vicious, intensely personal, and with the growth of social media like Twitter and Facebook, dangerous as well. Just days ago, television celebrity Charlotte Dawson was pushed to the very brink by these creeps. She was still shaken when I spoke to her, but somehow found the strength to share her story. Her hope is that by speaking out, she can save someone else from the hell that she only just survived. It's a side of Charlotte Dawson we never get to see, dishevelled and distressed. Are you feeling up to looking at some of those tweets and reading them out, some of the, the ones that you received that led you to... Yeah, look, I, absolutely, because, you know, the, the whole point is, is to show people what sort of scum are out there. This is what pushed Charlotte to the edge, to attempt to take her own life. Please put your face into a toaster. Hashtag die Charlotte. That human beings can be this depraved is hard to believe until you hear it and see it. Freedom of speech and go kill yourself. There are hundreds of these tweets. Please do the world a favour and go hang yourself, die Charlotte. An outpouring of hatred by nameless thugs, all because Charlotte dared to confront and expose one of their own, a Twitter troll. I speak for everyone in the universe. You need to kill yourself. Why kill did yourself. you keep reading these? You putrid nine gag never forgives. Go kill yourself, you die, Charlotte. And that's accompanied by a picture of a mutilated bloody child. Charlotte, why did you keep reading it? It's kept going and going and going and going and going. It was just... Um, it's directed at me. You know what's really super interesting about what she says there is at the end, the interviewer has to ask her twice why she kept reading. So I don't know because I don't know well enough and it's a terrible thing that people did to her. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But what's really interesting about that is it looks like that she's become a slave to other people's opinions of her and fear of man really has got a hold of her. And you know what? She was never ever meant to be that. No one here was ever meant to be a slave to chocolate or to other people's opinions or to shopping or to credit cards or their bank accounts or their house or their car. You were never meant, you were never meant to be that. And it's sad. When you watch something like that, you ought to look at that and be sad about it and be sad for her because of how far short she is of what God made her to be. True? That's, I, I just think that's sad. And I just think, Charlotte, can you even begin to imagine the grand plans that God had for you and still has for you and what he wants to do with you? But you've got to stop drinking from a broken earthen vessel of other people's opinions of you and you've got to get over to the fountain of living water. Amen? Is that true?
And the really interesting thing about it is when uh, we become a slave, you know what tends to happen? We tend to make God our slave. They've turned their back on me and not their face, but in the time of their trouble they say, arise and save us. People become demanding of God. It's just a weird irony. God made us to serve him and to be connected to him and to be his children. And when we stop doing that, not only do we become a slave of something else, but we start demanding that God come and save us. And then we have all this trouble. We get a little bit controversial here. Then we have all this trouble with pain and suffering in our lives because God's not doing what we think he should be doing. And we start questioning whether he exists and whether he's loving because he's meant to do what he's told. Now, there's still a problem in that um, just hear me, from a philosophical point of view, the, the problem of pain is a real thorny one for Christians, right? But just hear me on this, it would be a lot less thorny if there were less Christians running around expecting that God would do everything that they think he should do and making him their slave. Point three, you can't get the dirt off. Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. I mentioned, mentioned this before, but I remember one of my boys had some good clothes on and he went outside and he got some mud on his clothes and he came over to the door and he felt uncomfortable about it because he wasn't supposed to get mud on his good clothes and so he started to try and wipe it off, Right? And not only do you smear it, but he actually had mud on his hands. And it was like, it just made it worse. You're just going to look just, you know, it's like put your hands on the car, (laughs) all right? (laughs) And we'll just uh, check you for weapons, all right? And then we'll just get you into the bath, right? Because that's kind of the way it works. It's like, for us, when we kind of get stuff wrong, the instinct is I've got to get myself clean, but you never get clean on your own. You just kind of smear it and just make it worse. And some ways that we uh, go about trying to clean ourselves uh, are very interesting. We, one of the ways is we just deceive ourselves. Just it, We're not dirty, all right? Sometimes we justify ourselves. We think of good arguments for why we're actually a lovely, righteous, holy, good person. We scapegoat other people. I, um, a couple of days ago, one of the staff at the school here sent me an email which is quite abusive about old people because I turned 40. And... Uh, I, I sent back and I, something like, oh, that was really lovely. And she sent one back and she goes, well, she goes, it's ripping on you that makes my, my job fun. I'm just going, oh, excellent. So I'm kind of a whipping boy for everyone. That's a... So I sent one back and I said, oh, great, I'm the fall guy. All right. And then she sends one back and she goes, you know, I was so glad to have an older person in the library because uh, I didn't even know what a fall guy was. <laughs> so I had to ask them, do you guys know what a fall guy is? Yeah, you don't. Fall guy's the one that takes the fall for everyone else, right? So, you know, I said back to her, I said, rookie error, do you understand that one? What about repetitive apologies? Repetitive apologies can be a way of trying to get clean, can't they? And uh, probably most of us are pretty good at uh, trying to square up the ledger by doing some good deeds to sort it out. And it's just like a... A kid with a dirty hand and a dirty shirt trying to get himself clean. Is this donkey free? 
How can you say, I'm not unclean, I've not gone after the Baals? Look at your way in the valley, know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there, a wild donkey used to the wilderness, in her heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month they will find her. Is that donkey free? Doesn't sound free to me. And that's the uh, that's a deception in a sense of our, uh, our culture, isn't it? You can just go out and do whatever you want. You'll be free. I was talking to someone a little while ago who uh, desperately wanted to be free. And they were bound up. It was just so incredibly interesting. They were so desperate to be free. They were a slave to their desire to be free. And they were out of control in their pursuit of freedom. And it was really interesting because we got to that point. And I asked this guy, I said you're not free at all, are you? And you know what he said? He said, no, I'm not. I want freedom so bad that I'm not free. I'm a slave to what's going on for me. I'm going to finish up. I wanted to show you some more of that stuff, but uh, we'll just skip through. Let me ask you this. Is that a toaster? No, it's not, right? Yeah, what? Well, it looks like a toaster. What does a toaster have to, be, have to do to be a toaster? It's got a toast, right? Now, the interesting thing, I mean, it looks like a toaster, all right? What's interesting about it is there's no power cord, okay? A toaster has to toast to be a toaster, okay? If you want to be a real human, you've got to be plugged into God, all right? Now, if this toaster, let's say this toaster has a cable around the back of it that we can't see, all right? And let's say that it's plugged into a power point and the power point is switched on. Does the toaster need power? Now, think about it, because I'm getting all philosophical here. If the toaster's plugged into the power and the power switch is turned on, does it need power? No, it doesn't. Do you know why? Because it's got it. It's just always got it. It doesn't need power because it's just always got it. Is it. Some of you are going, this is really confusing. Are you getting it? Let me ask you this. Is that tree thirsty? Would it ever get thirsty? No, it would never get thirsty. Why wouldn't it get thirsty? It always gets provision. It always gets help. Jeremiah 17 says this, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. See, that's thirsty. God's plan for you is for you not to be thirsty. <coughs> All right? Now, some of you quite rightly might be going, yeah, but doesn't Jesus say in the Beatitudes, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be filled? Absolutely, right? They'll be filled. That's my point. Okay? That's when hunger and thirst is directed rightly. It ends up in fullness. All right? 
And that's actually God's plan for everyone. Whether you're a Christian here or not, God's plan for you is fullness and continual connection like a toaster that's plugged in and switched on. It doesn't need power. This tree does not need water. This tree just gets water all the time. There's never ever, as long as that lake stays filled, that tree will never, ever, 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 ever be thirsty. Ever. Ever. It's just not going to be thirsty. Jeremiah 17, verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree... He or she is like a tree planted by water. It sends out its roots by the stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes. There's no fear. It's not like this reservoir is just always going to be here. That tree is like, bring it on. All right? Isn't it? I mean, that's in the Hebrew. Bring it on. All right? Because I'm, not really, but I'm planted by the stream. The stream never runs out. You just bring it. Not arrogantly, just bring it. I can handle anything. And you know what? God would say that to all of you today. If you plant and you stay connected and you're right next to the stream and you're trusting in him and not trusting in yourself or any other false god, he would say to you, you can handle anything. And more than that, he's going to make sure that everything that comes your way is never going to be too much and the resourcing is always going to be there. It does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. And it is not anxious in the year of drought. Drought is anxiety-inspiring, but this tree is not anxious. It does not cease to bear fruit. It would be our heart at the project here that everyone who comes here would be prolific fruit bearers doing lots and lots of good. And it's not going to come necessarily just by good preaching or praying. You know what it's going to come by? It's going to come by you being planted and putting your heart's trust second by second and minute by minute in God. Why don't you stand with me and I'll, uh, I'll pray for you, hey? God, I pray that everyone here in this this building now, whether they love you now or not, that you'd work in them, that you'd you'd change their hearts and keep drawing them to you so that they would become a gnarly old tree like we've just seen on on the screen. A gnarly old tree, God, that we'd be, all of us here would get to 80, 90, maybe 100, and we'd be this gnarly old tree that never, ever moved from next, next to the spring of living water. And we can look back and we can just see season after season after season of fruitfulness and harvest and good things that have come from us being planted next to you. And we'll look back and we'll see some droughts that seemed to be scary at the time, but it was never really ultimately that scary because you were there and your sustenance and your provision never, ever ceased. And sometimes, God, we don't see that and we don't know it, and we don't recognize it, and sometimes we want you to do things that you're not up to, and we try to make you our slave. 
All the while you're saying, come and plant next to me the stream of living water. Don't be thirsty. Don't be thirsty. Be filled. And so, God, I pray that uh, by your Holy Spirit today that there would be a sense of quench of people's thirst today. And I pray that you'd help them to to repent and to turn away from things that are just increasing their thirst. God, I pray that you make them sorry. I pray that you make them sad for how they've jilted you. But I also pray, and I pray this mostly, that you would draw them back to your streams of living water. God, that they wouldn't sit in the uninhabited, parched wasteland of just condemnation or the parched wasteland of trusting themselves or trying to get themselves clean. But they would come back to you and that you would refresh and revive and you would love them and you would change them and you would just keep making them into this gnarly old tree. A gnarly old fruitful tree. God, I pray that you'd make the project that too. I pray that in 50 years the project would be a gnarly, fruitful tree. In 100 years that would be a gnarly, fruitful tree. That you'd protect it. That we would corporately be planted next to you, the fountain of living water. Amen.